Welcome to Sitting with Cece, the place to be for all discussions and conversations about isms and controversy, a podcast where you name it and we talk about it. Here on our podcast, we will create a safe space so we can have open and honest conversations and dialogue. We aim to educate you to increase your understanding and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Celia McIntosh, nurse practitioner, educator, and advocate. Thanks for joining me for this special first episode of Sitting with CC. This podcast will feature conversations about all things ism and controversy. This podcast aims to create a space where people can talk openly and honestly about issues so we can get to the heart of the matter. Today, I'm sitting down with Shawnee Wilson, an activist, internal medicine board certified physician assistant with areas of expertise in LGBTQ plus health, sexual health, minority health disparities, with emphasis on mental health, medication-assisted therapy for opiate addiction, trauma-informed care, and vaccine-preventable diseases. Community activism and engagement has been especially important to Shawnee. She is passionate about also giving a voice to the underserved people of Rochester, New York, she also works closely with local LGBTQ plus organizations such as Rochester Black Pride, where she currently serves as one of the co-organizers. In her free time, she is also the chair of the inaugural Rochester Police Accountability Board, which is one of the first in the country. We are so excited to have you as our first guest, Shawnee. Thank you so much for having me, Cece. So just a disclaimer, the views and the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the organizations we are affiliated with. Thank you, Shawnee, so much for accepting the invitation to pull up a chair with me and join us on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you share your knowledge and expertise. You do so much for the Rochester community. Let's unpack some of the things that you do as it relates to leadership. Today, we will discuss Black women in leadership, challenging barriers, biases, and institutional racism. So let's get to it. So we know that everyone experiences the workplace differently, but there seems to be a different set of rules for Black women. Out of all the leadership hats that you wear, what are some of the challenges as a Black woman that you have been faced with? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here for your very first show. And I also want to add, even though I am currently chairing the Police Accountability Board, you are the vice chair of that said board. And so I am lucky to know you and lucky to have you serving alongside me. So I just wanted to make sure that your listeners know that you are also equally as amazing slash badassery as I am. Thank you. So just, I guess to say some of the challenges that I'm dealing with in leadership with all the hats that I wear, I would say that there's a clear divide and how Black women in leadership versus white women in leadership or Black women slash people of color versus white women in leadership are treated. And I just obviously opened that up for a conversation. Also something for your listeners to kind of digest. But I think that, you know, for Black women, we are often seen as aggressive, volatile, insubordinate. I've heard used for us attitude problem. You know, that there are things that automatically color us in a certain way we already are seen with a certain lens slash pair of glasses on. And it always seems like if we have a certain style of leadership, it has to fit in within the aesthetic of womanhood, right? Which all white women deal with as well, where it's like we have to be passive, we have to be accommodating, we have to be demure and quote unquote womanly. 
in order to be seen as palatable for everybody else around us. And really, I'm talking about men and also women too, right? Right. So that's one of the things that I think that's the biggest thing that I see and probably the one that's the most difficult to get around because it really gets to a couple things, right? It gets to societal norms and it gets to racist attitudes. So when you talk about seen as aggressive and volatile and the attitude problem, that makes me think of a challenge of the likability factor where you're challenged with being this authentic leader and a fierce leader, but at the same time, if you are direct and authoritative, then that seems to be a very direct contraindication to what society believes that a woman should be. And really, individuals challenge that authority in that position, especially when it comes to Black women. So that's, on one hand, where one individual may be seen as assertive with their directness. Black women are often seen as aggressive. So I can totally understand where you're coming from with that. The thing is, too, is for women in general, I think that we are always trying to fit into a box in order to be seen as likable, right? You talked about the likability factor. And it's, too, it's that, you know, we're always so much at odds with culture and about what culture Mm -hmm. tells us we should be, that we should sit with our hands in our lap and that we should be smiling, quiet, polite. But also, it's like a double standard where it's like, you're smiling, quiet, polite, but then you're also aggressive, you're also strong, and you're also everything that you see on TV. Aggressive, strong, and you know you can do 30 things at once, right? But two, Mm -hmm. it's like, I also challenge the fact of that and say, that's also male standards about how women should be. That we're everything and we're nothing. We're some sort of magical creature and some messiah-like figure that we have to kind of ascribe to in order to be seen as okay and given the thumbs up to. And I know that's Mm -hmm. kind of a strong statement, but I think that it's kind of what we see as women in general and as Black women especially, you know, that you have to be a unicorn that does everything. Like we talked about Stacey Abrams, because she's been underappreciated, she has to overperform. And we have to produce these types of miracle-like things to be seen as somebody on the same wavelength as men white men especially, or just, you know, even men in general. So that is the constant climb of leadership. And really, too, it gets to the heart of the matter within our own understanding of ourselves and our own Mm -hmm. issues with our own self-esteem and what we believe to be what is correct and what is right for us. I think that we've been told in society that we have to be a certain way in order to be right. And we see that society will hold back from us what we want, which is to be liked and seen and to be seen if we don't act the way that we're supposed to as leaders, right? As women, as black women. And so we have to fit into a box, even though it crushes Mm -hmm. us, we still have to try to do so until we just figure out that this box isn't working. It doesn't work. It's too small. We need something bigger. I want to be big. I don't want to be small. And on the other side of that, you are left with, I would say women of every color and creed, right? Mm-hmm. that are left with the opposite of that, which is like, well, society will snatch away. You know, if we challenge them and say, you know, it doesn't care if you don't like me and society will be like, okay, cool. It's done. You know, it's out now. You have to sacrifice so much in order to be a leader right now. And women have been doing it forever, right? Those are one of the things I think the sacrifice of leadership, I guess. Yeah. And one of the other things that you brought up about organizations kind of holding back is oftentimes you're not the one to get the promotion. You're not the one you're constantly overlooked as a Black woman and having to deal with kind of like the mental gymnastics of being overworked and overworking and overperforming and still not being able to be seen as worthy to be in that position or to be kind of ostracized or just dismissed. Right. That's absolutely true. 
The thing is, too, is that, again, it goes back to what these organizations tell us about ourselves, right? And that they constantly are feeding into the narrative that you have to be this way in order to be good enough for this position. And there's always like, if you're constantly having to build yourself up and all of a sudden you look and you're constantly building and building, and then there's a wall standing in between you and the thing that you want. And if you have to keep climbing that wall, it's like, then is this thing that you want so much like this position of leadership within the organization, really what you should be going for? And maybe you should just do something else. And I did a compassion fatigue workshop a couple weeks ago where I just said, you know, we're talking to a bunch of caregiver professionals like us, like physician assistants, nurse practitioners, that it's like we're constantly knowing about having to just shell out different parts of ourselves in order to meet the needs of the community. But organizations that are underappreciative of how much we sacrifice and having to just cut the cord and be like, look, my talents, my leadership ability is better utilized someplace else. I'm not going to keep trying to climb this wall to try to please everyone. So also the tell of leadership is when to just walk away. Right. And what I'm noticing is someone sent me something recently on Facebook and it was talking about how Black women are entrepreneurs, like the majority of entrepreneurs, but they're often the ones that are also not supported even being entrepreneurs. So this whole organizational neglect, in a sense, are leading Black women out of the organizations to build their own tables Mm -hmm. so they can be their own bosses and they can be their own leaders. So that's one of the things that I've been seeing lately. Mm -hmm. But innovation and creativity is central to who we are as Black women, I Mm -hmm. think, because we just have to constantly be thinking on our feet, creating something out of nothing. You know, we know women in our lives that have done the same thing. Grandmothers, aunts, you know, sisters, teachers, you know, that are just constantly creating, creating, and so it becomes second nature. So it does not surprise me that we fill these roles so easily. The fact of the Mm -hmm. matter is that we're constantly sacrificing and we're constantly carrying things on our backs. It's just that we are built for difficulty. But the thing is too, is like my question though for leaders and for women is that, yes, we're built for difficulty, but we are not supposed to live there. Right. So then that brings up the mental gymnastics we have to do and the fatigue, the exhaustion, the feeling tired of having to deal with some of these extra steps that some of our white counterparts don't necessarily have to deal Mm -hmm. with. That's right. I think that's a lot of things, right? That you are dealing with a system that was not built for you. And we don't have a key necessarily to this lock. And so we have to fashion our own key or pick the lock in order to get in the door. And the system in which we live in benefits white men specifically and white women by default and then black men and then black women, et cetera, Mm -hmm. after that. But I think that we have become so good at just picking the lock that we just try busting the door down and we try to do the best that we can do. But again, my question is, you know, in the midst of all of that, when we're trying to create these new areas, new places of expertise, the thing that we have to understand as Black women in leadership is that we have to make sure that our self-care is paramount and also building that into our schedules every day because a lot of us don't even know what that even looks like. We're just used to going on every day, every day, every day, hammering away, chipping away at this glass ceiling, trying to pick the lock in the door that we lose sight of ourselves within that struggle. Definitely. So second question for Mm -hmm. you. I reviewed a 2016 American Association of Universities work called Barriers and Biases, the Status of Women in Leadership. And what they found was that lack of women in leadership roles can be explained through structural barriers and the gender biases that continues to affect them in the workplace. You mentioned some of the differences between Black women versus white women as they advance in their leadership role. 
Are there any differences? Difference between Black women and white women in leadership roles? Yeah, as they're advancing. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to my experience. I think I also offer opposing viewpoints, which I'm sure white women who listen to this can give their own perspectives, which I think are unique as well. And they should, in a sense, think about their own when they're listening to this. I would say my experience has been that I have had to find that the ground is a lot harder to plow through. And Mm -hmm. I know that ladies can argue me all day, but I think that we as Black women have so much to prove because we are already being told that we are so difficult to deal with by people above us, by our peers, by society. And so to disprove that and that you are a capable leader on top of that. And then also the added barrier of mentorship. That's also a thing, right? To have strong Black women and people in your life that actually can mentor you properly to do the role that you're doing. That's also a huge deal. Those things have been challenges for me moving forward and just the burden of leadership, knowing that you know others can, but you can't. And that there are significant gaps in us teaching each other how to be effective in what we're doing. The only thing, and I think the thing where I would challenge you know, folks who listen is say, you know, when you're looking for mentorship, but just realize and understand that, yep, you know, we all understand like in medicine, you know, Celia, you know, we know this to be true, right? That, you know, we learn by doing and you pray you don't make a mistake, right? And I think that we just mm-hmm. have to get into a place where we, you know, in leadership demand that we have some sort of mentorship because, you know, a lot of times you are just left out here. You're thrown in the deep end until you learn how mm-hmm. to swim. And that's also, you know, a huge problem with women in leadership, especially black women in leadership. Yeah. And at that point, you're like, is this race? Is this game of life or this struggle even worth me being a part of this team if I'm constantly being essentially told that you're not accepted? You don't belong there. That's correct. And the two is like, you know, well, then what does that mean? What does that look like? And you essentially are having to constantly bet against yourself. And that's just a script that's always been read to us. And I think that that's the reason why I keep thinking about racism and, you know, structural racism, institutional racism, prejudice and bias, because people in leadership that we have problems with as Black women, they're all reading the same script. That it's like, we expect this type of behavior from you. So therefore, we're going to counteract that with this behavior instead. And so we've already put you in a corner. And so you have to make sure that you disprove us by jumping through a burning hoop in a tiny clown car in a cup of water. It always has to be like this yeah. thing, this miraculous, amazing thing. So you're already, in a sense, set up yes. to fail. Yes, but the thing is, too, is like, are we failing, though? By some miracle, no. The mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that we are kicking some series behind out here and that we do so because of our Black girl magic, period, and that mm-hmm. we are just amazing, wonderful people that are just amazing at what we do. And that is the only reason why we do them, because we are just brightly capable on our own not because society makes us that way. You know, we just have this magic inside of us that is able to do these amazing things. It's just that I think that, you know, we should all be treated the same. That won't happen. But I think that the Messiah complex that we all have to do doesn't necessarily help anyone. I think that we all should be treated the same in that way in leadership and not expect all these miracles from people that are just human. Another issue that this article brought up was that young women leaders most constantly have to manage conflicting perceptions about their identities. And I know that I too can say that I've had this struggle as well. It's like, how do you show up? How do you be your authentic self when you're constantly trying to manage what people think, what people feel about you? What kind of perception do you give off about your being and your Mm -hmm. mere existence? So just to ask you a question, how do you deal with that? Well, seriously, I mean, it's about understanding who you are 
at the end of the day, understanding what you bring to the table, understanding that there is this barrier similar to Stacey Abrams, you overperform. You take on many projects. You try to show your leadership or, you know, individuals that you're capable of doing the work. So you take on more of the work, spend more hours at the office. So many of those things that you're doing, you're overperforming, you're taking on more things because you have to essentially prove your work. So I would pose that same Mm. question to you. How do I do that? I mean, I think the PAB was a really big lesson for me because this is the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. And, you know, I really had to step into a place I'd never been before and really trust myself that I could do the work because I know that I'm capable. And I think, you know, confidence comes from just doing things continuously, repeatedly over time, Mm -hmm. right? Like we see this in medicine all the time. Like it's talking about all the things that we hate, not hate, but things that we remember in school used to roll our eyes at, like anything related to kidneys or renal disease, right? Is always the like, oh, you know, chronic disease, managing chronic kidney disease and your primary care patient. And just about what that entails, especially if they have worsening renal disease and always just being like super frustrated with that, you know, when I was beginning my PA life. But then now, you know, over time, it just gets easier and it gets less complicated because you understand more. And, you know, I just had to understand that I may not know everything now, but if I just take a deep breath and just keep walking, then these meetings that I'm having where I'm intimidated by people, people that I know that are trying to intimidate me, situations that I feel very small in, that one day I will feel like I fit into them, that it will come with time because I know that I can meet the challenge because I know myself. And I think that's how, in leadership, that is how we just grow into our shoes. Imagine like your kid walking around with your shoes on or something. You know, eventually you fill out in those Mm -hmm. shoes and you can walk in those shoes, but it just takes time. And I think I've learned a lot about just giving myself grace at this time because I've just seen, and I know it's just like a shot of confidence that I've never had before because I can see that I can do it. And I may not know everything, but you know, at least I can do some things, right? And I think when you come with that attitude, Mm -hmm. I think even just one step at a time being like, okay, I'm confident in one thing today. You know, I think that that meets you down the road, you know, that meets you in such a bigger space and you're more prepared for it. That's what I'm seeing. And that's how I'm dealing with that for me. Mm -hmm. This does become a very daunting situation. Like I mentioned before, really trying to outperform that trauma of showing up every day and trying to do the work and perhaps the microaggressions that you deal with in that scenario or in those spaces, constantly feeling the isolation and feeling dismissed and continuing to feel undervalued and underpromoted. So what role do you think bias and racism plays in that? Because it's always seems like racism really Mm -hmm. rises to the top in that occasion. Yeah. So speak to that. They're in most spaces that we occupy, but it's like talking about a blanket. It's like a tapestry. It's just woven inside the tapestry. And, you know, I was thinking of Ta-Nehisi Coates today because he's got this special on HBO on his book, Between the World and Me. And he talks to his son and he's saying, and I'm just paraphrasing very lightly here, but he talked about how, you know, he was like, listen, I don't necessarily know what to tell you about this world. The only thing I know is that you have to figure out how to survive in it. You have to figure out how to live in it. And that's the thing I just say to us is that, you know, as Black women, as Black people, we are constantly in things that we know that individually we cannot change. And so we have to learn how to live in this world, survive and thrive in this world, I would say thrive. That means that I know for me specifically, if I know that I'm capable and I can do the work, then I need to make sure that I can 
climb high enough that I know that some changes can be made. And women and Black women have, have been especially dealing with this for generations, centuries. And, you know, specifically, you know, we talked about the suffragette movement. We talked about the women's vote and, you know, how Black suffragettes worked to get the vote passed. But it took many years to do that. It wasn't just like all of a sudden the vote was done and then it was just over. We're like, yay, it's over. It took them years. And the Black women were ostracized from the conventions because they were Black and they didn't want to offend the Southern states, right? That were advocating for the vote. But these women like Ida B. Wells still campaigned tirelessly for women's right to vote and it eventually was passed. And so we just have to be like women, Black women are strategic thinkers. We are constantly seeing how the system doesn't work for us and trying to figure out how to change it. I would just say that we just need to make sure, Mm -hmm. I think of it on a micro level first and on a macro level. The micro level is us. We have to be able to be in a place where we can do this fight, you know, because it's a fight. And one day, like I told my sister recently, You've got to understand one day, all of these things that we have to deal with as Black women can be so much. We just carry it around all day long, like, you know, a burden on our backs. But when you get home and you're in your place and it's a quiet, peaceful place, you have to learn to put it down. My mother says, leave it in the car. It'll be there tomorrow when you get there. But we have to learn how to cultivate areas Mm -hmm. of self-care in order for us to do the things that we need to do, which is really essentially all these things will be here. Racism, And sexism, misogyny, all these things will be here until the end of days. But the thing that we have to learn as Black women is how to love ourselves. Because if not, you know, all these creativity, inspiration, you know, all these things that make us special live within that space. And we are so disconnected from it. It's like coming home to a person you don't even know. But when we really Mm -hmm. try to cultivate that area, cultivate a practice of loving yourself and doing, you know, a consistent practice of self-affirmation, then that's really when transformation starts to happen. And honestly, Celia, my life in the last nine months has changed drastically. And I would say because I've just said yes to myself. That doesn't mean that I'm like super like, Mm -hmm. you know, guru over here and like, yay, I do this. Nope, it just means that I just said yes. And some days that looks like better self-care, some days I'm not great at it. You know, some days I go take a walk and, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes my self-care is just like hanging out with my cat, you know, but ultimately your yeses Mm -hmm. will meet you your yeses will meet you in the middle of the road and take Mm -hmm. you the rest of the way. And the myth of the strong Black women is also a thing, right? I count against that. I counter Mm -hmm. it because you are a woman just like we are all women trying to figure this out. And we need to understand what cultivating our own self-knowledge looks like because that's the only thing that will keep us stable and safe. And that really seems like when you talk about not just surviving, wanting to thrive, that seems like where there could be that bridge of understanding that you have to do the hard things But being able to, like you said, cultivate that space, recharge your battery in a sense, take care of you to be able to get to Mm -hmm. that pride zone. So what do you do for your self-care? What was your self-care practice like? Well, (laughs) pre-COVID, I would say my self-care practice was a lot like traveling and working out. So since we're not there right now, it's now talking about some of these issues so we can get to the heart of the matter because Oftentimes, Black women feel like Mm -hmm. they're alone in this and they're doing it alone. And I really wanted to create that space that we can have these conversations for them to know that you're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all going through something. We're all, like you said, figuring it out together. And then really just, like I said, really wanting to talk about these issues. So that's one of the ways that I'm actually cultivating my self-care by really trying to be a voice and really to have this nice conversation. So one of the things that I've heard you talk about Mm -hmm. is otherizing. 
Can you speak a little bit to that? Can you tell the audience what exactly that means and how that impacts Um, leadership? So otherizing is a term that's really, I mean, the place that I've heard it is in the queer community. To just talk about like, there's those that belong and there's those do not. And that you are placed in in the other quote unquote category. And so a shortened term for that is just saying, I've been otherized by these groups of people, you know, that I don't belong. And, you know, as far as like a leadership impact, I think it's just that like we talk about leadership style. I think that that's probably the place that I see it the most. I see it as a ageist thing, just saying like ageism and being like, you know, well, here's how we do things at this level in the game. And here's how you're doing things. And that doesn't seem right to me. So we're going to otherize you. But we talk about like leadership strategy Mm -hmm. and we talk about exercising, you know, flexing your own leadership style, right? We talked about the idea of mentorship and that's necessarily not seen very much or it's scarce, right? And so it's easy instead of mentoring folks to otherize them in their own leadership style, because a lot of folks in these, I wouldn't say older generations, but like more quote unquote seasoned leaders will put new folks in a category and then kind of shame them out of it into their own space. It's like, And if I can say it another way, saying like, well, we don't do it like that. We do it like this. And we're going to ostracize you until you figure that out and get in line. Shame is a driver. Shame is used to definitely change behavior quickly. That's why people use it. If Mm -hmm. people didn't see that shame was useful, they wouldn't use it. But we all know what shame feels like. We all know it's to Mm -hmm. be otherized, isolated, right? And set apart, not in Mm -hmm. a good way. That's how I see otherizing being used. Yeah. And like you said, it can be very isolating. And often as a Black woman in these spaces, whether it's work or community leadership, you are often the only one. So with that, you kind of have this imposter syndrome. Yeah. I mean, gosh, imposter syndrome is so tough. Imposter syndrome to me just means like there's an internalized persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud, quote unquote fraud, that your skills, talents and accomplishments aren't real. And that if people just knew the real you, quote unquote, the real you, they would see that you are not all that you are putting out there. And it's like, you know, if they just turn a corner, then you'll fail. Then you'll see that you're not really that good at what you're doing. And I think that also people use that as a tool as well to try to manipulate people into doing a behavior that is pleasing to the person, to the person that wants a desired behavior out of somebody. You know, in the leadership positions I see, I've been Mm -hmm. seeing that a lot. And I think, you know, especially those that are really capable leaders have a lot of imposter syndrome stuff. I see it in myself when a lot of really big things happen, they can be accomplishments or not. We recently, you and I were able to, in the team, the PAB, the Police Accountability Board, we successfully got our executive director confirmed, which was not easy. And there was a lot of moving parts and it took a lot of work. And the next day I was exhausted. I was exhausted for at least a week and a half because it just took so much energy. And when I thought Mm -hmm. about it, it was because I was like, why am I so tired? I think because I was emotionally exhausted from the experience for a lot of different reasons, but also just the amount of strategizing that had to go into making sure that this person that we wanted was able to get the position that we wanted him to have. And, you know, even though I saw that we were capable and that we did it, it still left me with a sense of emptiness. And then all of a sudden, imposter syndrome was like, oh, what's happening? What's happening, fraud? You know, and I think too, it's like a lot of times you can stop imposter syndrome if you just take care of yourself, but a lot of times you can't. I mean, it just happens, especially when you're doing big things that you've never done before. I think it's just always there. So, Mm -hmm. well, that was a major hurdle. Yeah. Who does to us? What do you think imposter syndrome looks like to you? Like, what are some of the things that you see as far as in yourself, your patients, et cetera? One of the biggest things for me is really being able to show up as who you are 
and to be able to do the work that we do on the front lines and taking care of patients and really being able to do that job. I think I saw a lot more of the imposter syndrome Mm. initially when Mm -hmm. I got out of school and started my first position as an NP, you know, really feeling like, am I going to be able to do this? And then once you're in the role, individuals, nurses coming to you, wanting advice on certain patients, and really, again, being at that point where you're like, oh, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to give them the right answer? Do I know as much as I think I know? So really, you know, I think over time that's evolved. And, you know, maybe more things now, it's more on a different level, where I'm doing a lot of process issues and speaking on issues of human trafficking and developing policies for human trafficking or things that I've done with my depression screening protocol. Mm-hmm. It's really like next level things. Do I know as much as I think I know? So that's kind of how it shows up. And I think over time, depending on what stage of your job or life you're in, it's going to look differently. So really just giving yourself some grace and being able to understand that you are growing. Mm -hmm. That's often how I deal with it. So tell me about a time where you have thrived in an environment despite these Well, I would say probably the first time I began to recognize that was when I started working with Rochester Black Pride. So the very first year, which was two years ago, I got involved. I helped plan the Black Pride events that came through and it was really, really fun. I was exhausted because I was still working every day. Again, doing too much, right? Still working every day at my full-time job as a PA in a federally qualified health center clinic. Plus, I was lecturing on Suboxone stuff. And within a week, I was doing all that. And it was just, I was so burnt out by the end. But it was so much fun, though, because I got to see how all these things that I planned, you know, was materializing and how many people had fun. We had so many people turn up. Young queer kids felt like they had a place that they could express themselves. It was just so fun. That's when I started to see, you know, even though it was really difficult that I started to see sort of my ability and leadership try to kind of thrive and being like, okay, I can plan this. I can do this. It's just like any exercise in leadership is like flexing muscles you don't necessarily use. And so when you start to use them, you're like, okay, how else can I use this? What else does this look like? But Black Bread, I would say, was the very first time I started to see that I could do really, really cool things and really enjoy myself doing them. Right. That's great. And it kind of, like you said, kind of, elevated Mm -hmm. you or kind of gave you the exposure. And oftentimes you just need the exposure and an opportunity. And as Black women, oftentimes we don't even get that opportunity to even utilize some of our skills or to do some of that work so people can understand that we do have the skill set to do that. But I'm hearing from you because you had the opportunity Mm -hmm. and were exposed to that opportunity that you were able to develop some leadership skills. And not only that, you were able to See yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's important to say too, is that, you know, as Black people, we create our own opportunities when we create them for each other, which is what Black Pride did for me. Mm -hmm. And I had a space in order to kind of flex Mm -hmm. my creative muscles and see what I could manifest and what it would look like. And it looked like something really great. And so that was really what started this journey for me. And so we, I think as Black women especially, Mm -hmm. have to be able to understand that we have to create opportunities for other Black women. We were hearing this Mm -hmm. once about like women tell other women when things are okay versus not okay. You know, when environments are safe versus not safe. And, you know, I would say the same thing for, you know, Black people, Black women, especially, that we have to be able to create spaces because we understand that society necessarily wasn't built for us to thrive in. Even in our spaces, it's tough. Mm -hmm. But I think if we understand that we have to create that safe space, I think that would really go a really long way. Agree. 
So what are some recommendations and tips that you would leave with the audience? I know that you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier about knowing yourself, giving yourself some grace and self-care. Can you tell the audience why that is so important, especially in a leadership role, especially as a Black woman? Mine is necessarily about Black women understanding and connecting to themselves on a deeper level and not putting other people's needs in front of your own, which is what we do by default. And instead, just understand that a lot of us don't really understand who we are. And it's just much more comfortable for us to put other people's needs and understand other people and get our needs met through that, like taking care of our own needs and seeing our confidence grow. And so one of the things I'm going to just stress is just our own idea of what self-care looks like and strengthening yourself. Like, you know, you only eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so just one day, you know, just take a day at a time being like, okay, I'm going to do one thing for myself today to build trust so that I can take care of myself tomorrow. And a lot of things too, is a lot of us have a lack of self-trust. It's like we keep putting up these things. We're like, I'm going to go run five miles tomorrow. I'm going to go make all this batch cooking for the week. And then it just sits in the refrigerator because I'm too tired to eat it, you know, and then we lose trust in ourselves. And so really to build self-trust, you just do one thing. One thing meaning I'm going to buy a journal and write in it once a day, even if I just write a sentence and then like build on that and say, okay, I wrote in a journal for a week. Now I'm going to write in a journal and then I'm going to make my lunch for two days. You know, even if you just have to build trust on that kind of micro level, I think that'd be helpful. Mm -hmm. And building up a space within your home, a safe space where you can create something for self-expression. Like for instance, I like to do paint by number things. I know since COVID started, that's been my idea of self-care while I watch a movie or something. That's been really special for me. Or even like Mm -hmm. women that have children that are young, you know, just even creating like a box, like buying a box from the store like a really cool box in like a local craft store and putting mm-hmm. stuff inside of it that is just special for you. It's like, this is mm-hmm. your own ideas of self-expression that help you to love on yourself. Don't expect anybody else to do it, you know? And the thing is like, if you can be creative mm-hmm. in loving yourself, what else can you be creative in? And, you know, all of a sudden this entire world's opened up to you because you just said yes mm-hmm. to yourself. So that's the thing that I would say. I wanted to touch on something you said, you know, we need to understand Oftentimes, Black women don't understand who they are. And I think sometimes what I see happen is maybe you're in environments, whether you're in a work environment that's telling you that this is society's expectation of you, and you are so challenged with being your authentic self, now you have an element of confusion, or that you're trying to put on a mask, take off a mask. You're trying to wear these multiple identities to kind of fit the environment. And that oftentimes you lose yourself. I can't speak for all Black women, but oftentimes that's kind of how I felt in it. Like, okay, you want me to be one way. And if I'm one way that day, I know it. You know, it really depends on your mood, what's acceptable. So now it's just like, okay, well, where do I fit Mm -hmm. in? Because you're telling me to do this this day, that, that day. And now I have this confusion and I don't know what well, you want so, me to be. So one, one thing I'll that, with that is if you're talking yourself. about an organization you know, doing so. that to someone, that's abuse. And that's emotional manipulation. And my thing I would say is like, look, you know, no place is worth that to you. And they will never see you. And I've learned from firsthand experiences dealing with organizations that they will never see you for what you are. They only receive you for what you can do for them. And again, you know, if you can go to someplace else, then you should consider that or the person listening should consider that. Because again, like if you're a round peg, you can't fit into a square hole, no matter 
You could if you like took a knife and just started cutting off pieces of yourself. But why should you do that in order to fit into somebody else's idea of what you are? And society tells us that enough. So it's like, look, if my idea of self-care and boundary setting is that I'm just done being treated or being otherized or put into a box or seen as some like magical unicorn, some magical, fabulous black woman unicorn in order to fit into somebody else's needs, then I'm just have to say that I have to step away from that and just not do that anymore. And so that's also a challenge. And look, it's a challenge. It's not easy. It's Mm -hmm. not saying like, oh, wait, girl, you know, got out there. Like, it's just a question. It's just an ask of saying, you know, if we are constantly in spaces, I'm talking about organizational spaces, racism and institutional racism and all that is a whole other monster, right? You look at the organization itself and they are treating you in a way that makes you feel like what you just said, then I counter with, should that person be there? Because are they going to see you for what you are? And if the Mm -hmm. answer is no, and you truly know that, then it's time to go. It's time to go. And you can take all those experiences that you Mm learned with you and go to your next place. So with that, 2020 has been an incredible, challenging, unprecedented year. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career or role in community activism? You know, I would say, like I said before, always say yes, or make sure you say more yeses than noes. I would say just understand that the work is a lot and be open, be mindful to other voices at the table. Understand that you have something to offer and that your creativity can actually impact a community in a positive way. Don't be afraid of challenging things. And I would just say, just say yes, you know, just say yes to new opportunities, be creative. And actually also one thing I would say is like, have a very small group of activists that you trust to help you with the work. Not everybody, you don't need a circle of 10, but you do need a circle of three. And you always have to have some amount of folks that you trust within this work, or it's really going to be difficult. You know, as Black women, we're constantly having discussions about how we're supposed to fit into a society that tells us that we are one way, that we are only meant to be welfare queens and be on Mori. And instead of being like changing the game and being powerful and having, having power, right? And that is one reason why, like I decided a while ago, because I was in an organization like the one you were describing earlier, that I was going to climb my way to whatever top of the mountain I needed to be in order to make changes that would influence how people treat people. I'm in there now with the PAB Mm -hmm. along with you, but I guess the thing that motivates me is just, even if we can change a little bit of how society works and we've won, and especially also creating safe spaces for Black women to express themselves also motivates me as well. And using my creative talents in order to do that. That's awesome. So without further ado, I want to thank you for that. And thank you for all the good expertise and information that you've offered to the audience today. So thank you again, Shawnee, mm-hmm. for taking time out of your busy schedule to come sit with Cece. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Please share it with others post about it on social media, leave a rating or review. Also, feel free to leave a voicemail with questions or suggested topics for future podcasts. And to catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at DOC underscore Macintosh, M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. I will see you next time. Thank you for pulling up a chair and listening to Sitting with Cece. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you access your podcast. Follow me on social media, share the episode, 
DM me with comments, or leave a voicemail message with topic suggestions and questions for our next podcast. Remember, the views and opinions expressed during the show represent our guest and host alone. Until next time, bye.